Hello, friends, and welcome back to another episode of Real Talks. I'm your host, David Steele, along with my co-host, Eloa Orism. If you like what you're hearing, you can stay up to date with us and never miss a podcast and hit the follow button. Occasionally, we'll be bringing you big interviews such as today. You can follow me on Twitter at WannabeRounder and on Instagram at DCadudo. Where can they find you, Eloa? I'm on LinkedIn and also on Instagram, Eloa I'm the only one over there. You should have no problem at all finding me. You better spell that first name, though. <laughs> E-L-O-A is so an, such an easy one. Come on, E-L-O-A. It's like, uh, <laughs> how you say it. Go for it, guys. As I said, we have a special guest joining us today. He's a three-time Emmy winner, which is just the beginning of his long list of accolades. Currently, he's involved with the charity Amanda's Foundation, located in Beverly Hills, which helps pets in need. Additionally, he and his wife Erin have a few of their own, few of their own, Emma and Audrey, and raise money for other charities, Greyhound, helping Greyhounds after the racing days. His day job, though, is to review movies and talk about some of the, t- the biggest names in Hollywood, as he did last weekend. And his name is George Pinocchio, and he joins us today. Thank you very much, Mr. Pinocchio, for joining us. Thank you for having me. So where can they find you on social media? Uh, on Instagram and on Twitter, it's ABC7George. And then on Facebook, it's my name, George Pinocchio, P-E-N-N-A-C-C-H-I-O. And for some reason, David and Illawa, sometimes these fake accounts come up. So if you don't see my face and see the interaction, and you'll know it's it's a scam. I don't like that part of social media. So let's, as I said, let's start with the Oscars. It was just last weekend. And what were some of your highlights? The highlight, one of the highlights was the arrivals line, because normally what happens is we're live from one to three 30 and then we stream from three 30 to five. And this goes all around the country and all around the world. But at one o'clock who's showing up at two o'clock who's showing up. Well, this year, because eight categories were not announced live, but recorded at four o'clock in the afternoon, several stars showed up earlier than usual. I think one highlight for me always is Nicole Kidman and Keith Urban. I love Nicole. She started our streaming show with me and I wanted her to know a couple of things. And I told her that, I don't know if you know this or not, but almost 50 years to the day, Lucille Ball presented at the Oscars. And of course she plays Lucille Ball um, in Being the Ricardos and was nominated for Best Actress. And then I said, and in 1989, Lucille Ball made her final public appearance at the Oscars. And I said, I think that's significant. And she clutched her heart and said, that is so significant. And I thought, well, maybe I'll help her go yeah. to other yeah. people. Give her some good luck. But I'm a huge Lucy fan, and I love Nicole. I loved being the Ricardos. I wish it had been up for Best Movie, but I'm so glad three of those four actors got nominated. Even when they don't win, those nominations bring attention to a movie, um, bring more eyes to that film, and I think it was a really good piece of art. Absolutely. I, I For myself, I actually – I wish Nicole had won. I mean, she had won for the hours many years ago, but I, I had seen – I think it didn't really – did, did it really get a, a wide release, the, the eyes of Tammy Faye? Because I, I did go to see it, and my heart was just fluttering when I heard Jessica Chastain won. Well, you know, I think Jessica Chastain did a great job. I also think that, you know, Oscars have these campaign times where people are going on talk shows and this and that and getting their face out there. Some actors, like Jesse Buckley, 
um, who was in the movie with Olivia Coleman. She, I don't think, did anything. So they kind of know I'm not going to win, but I get to go to the Oscars. But with Nicole Kidman, I think she was a favorite for a long time. And then she hurt her hamstring, you know, and she couldn't even go to the Oscar luncheon. So a lot of her activities to have her out and about were derailed by an injury. She did show up at the Oscars and she had to wear flats because of her injury, but she still towers. So yes, she's a very tall person. But George, tell me how like, you know, I've been talking about social media and how promotions for those movies also starts there. So a big buzz on social media today, sometimes more important than the whole campaign that you can pay for. Um, how first, how does that impact also your work too? Because now we have stories, we have posts, we have people doing live things all the time. So how does that impact your work and how does that impact Hollywood as well? Well, it gives us more work. So we should say that uh, where I work, they do like us to post something every day on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. So I always do my best to always do that as a minimum. I find that I don't particularly like doing Facebook lives because usually I'm at some premiere and I'm walking down the line and people haven't come yet because you have to be locked down at a certain point before they arrive. So every once in a while I will do, here's what it looks like if it's something really special. But uh, the Facebook lives, I just haven't had great success with. And I noticed that just based on the number of views. So also this year, I believe there were influencers at the Oscars for the first time because they're looking to get that younger demographic back They're still trying to figure out the whole landscape of media is trying to figure out how to keep those young fans and keep people from cutting the cords. A lot of the cords have already been cut. We're now streaming. So the following day after the Oscars, we did a newscast from seven to eight on our website, abc7.com, all the own stations on the red carpet.com. And I think it was one of the, if not the, like one of the biggest streaming newscasts that we've done so far. So, and just like our pre-show from 3.30 to 5 Pacific time, that pre-show got a great audience. And in the last half hour may have been the best pre-show numbers ever. So we are realizing that people are, are getting their information in different ways. For me, television is still my main thing, but I'm trying to incorporate these other aspects of our lives today because some people just do this all day. Yeah. Well, and that and that leads and you and you brought up streaming, and that was my leads me into my next question. How do you think the streaming wars with Netflix and Hulu and Disney Plus and let's let's be clear, Coda, which which is on Apple TV Plus, one Best Picture. Um, how do you think that's affected Hollywood and cinema in itself? Well, I think sometimes um, companies like Netflix or Apple, um, there's money. There is a lot of I know that that Netflix flew in journalists to have a lunch with one of the nominees and all that kind of stuff that they can, they can do. It's, I guess, allowed by the rules of certain critics organizations. But I think with CODA, what you had was genuineness. I covered the uh, SAG awards and the SAG awards line is misery. And we didn't even see hardly any movie stars make their way to our spot on that carpet, except the entire cast of CODA. This movie meant something to every single one of them. It was shot in 28 days. It was a low-budget film. It had high hopes, and people grasped to it in a time where we're dealing with war, we're coming out of a pandemic, and this is a movie that made people feel really good, brought tears to my eyes watching. 
I felt so satisfied when it was over. And each one of those people that were in that movie wanted to stop and discuss it and talk about why it was important and how it was so inclusive and why they wanted to keep this inclusivity going. So their message and being out there so much, I don't think was so much about winning, but letting people know, hey, we're here. We're here. Look at us, see us, include us, keep us. Troy Kotzer plans to already make more things moving ahead. He might even direct a movie where the um, hearing impaired will be involved. Marley Matlin has been doing this ever since Children of a Lesser God. Now she's got a teammate in Troy who can help get the word out. The director of that movie is so proud of what happened. And remember, she was awarded a screenplay. Niall DeMarco, who won Dancing with the Stars and was America's Next Top Model, had a short about the Maryland School for the Deaf, and that didn't win, but Niall did the whole line. So I think what we saw with CODA, back to CODA, is that there was a love for a movie that the people in it knew was good and that they were proud of and they wanted us to know about. So they did what they needed to do to let us know they are here and they're not going anywhere and we should include them. And you know what? We should. The movie won Best Picture. Clearly, the members of the Academy thought it was good enough to get that prize and give one to Troy as well. So I think we're on an upswing there. That makes sense. I think that you can't deny what has happened after all these years since 1989 with Marley Matlin that we are open to seeing more inclusivity. You know, and it always wasn't that way. The pandemic, of course, shut down Hollywood for the better part of a year. Did you, I mean, how did it affect you professionally, promotionally? Did you think the theaters would survive? I worried about the theaters and I don't think all of them survived. And I think what we're going to see now, you know, they're already dabbling with, um, this is a big movie like the Batman. We're going to charge a little bit more because that's what they do in Europe. So we're seeing now, just like in grocery stores, we're paying for more for groceries. I think we're going to be paying a little bit more for concessions or maybe paying a little more for some tickets. I struggled with this because all of a sudden we were doing Zoom interviews and it was something we'd not done before. But we got used to it relatively quickly because we could still tell stories. And I know there was anger on some parts because these movies were being released, say, to a streaming service instead of at the box office. But all these people who were trapped at home suddenly had entertainment that they could go to during a really trying time and watch a movie. And, you know, they go away for a couple of hours and go into that fantasy land of movie watching and feel a little bit better. So I appreciated all those studios and all those streaming services who said, we're going to still produce content for you. And so um, in that way, that was great. But I spent the better part of two years reporting from various spots in my living room or my hallway or my family room and in my workroom doing interviews. So I spent a lot of time at home. Uh, Our company made sure that we were going to be safe. Our anchors were separated in different rooms, sometimes not made to look. um, It was made to almost not look like that, but there'd be a little line in the middle of the screen and they were in two different places. We had a sports person in a, in a different room completely. The weather person at our news station wasn't allowed to walk over to the desk because it was too close. Everyone in the newsroom was wearing masks. 
I came into the newsroom basically once a month to shoot a special, but I would come in 10 minutes before I was due to tape, put on my face, make sure my tie was okay, stand in the studio. I would be the only one except a tech person. I'd read all of my lines because I recorded a lot at home. And when I was done, sometimes I would just leave the studio and go right back home. I wasn't really even going into the newsroom. So we dealt with a lot of separation. So sometimes, and I don't know how it was in your world, there'd just be a meeting of the newsroom, of the department or the station, and everyone would get on Zoom and it was nice to just say hello. People retired during this time. It was hard to say goodbye like this to people you've worked with for 25 plus years, but it's the world we lived in. And now I just got back into the station last week It's still relatively quiet, but on Monday, more people will be back into our newsroom and we can hope to move on from there. And we're going to figure it out. Not everyone will be back five days. Some people will come in a couple of days a week, work remotely a few days a week. So it's all going to be a nice balancing act to figure out what works the best for everybody. But thank goodness companies understand now that it worked when it needed to, and maybe it can still work. Um, when it doesn't have to be that way. No, is it kind of like riding a bike going back to the office? Oh, I mean, I, mean, uh, just, it, I needed the training wheels, David. Yeah. I needed the training wheels because there's all this stuff on a computer. Like Illa was probably really wise about all things with the computer. I'm not. I grew up on a typewriter. So I learned all the things that we have to do to write a script, all the technical things, like if you're putting in uh, like we call it a soundbite, David. If you, I had you talk about the Batman for 12 seconds, there's a key thing I have to do, control something, and that puts Lucky. in the 12 seconds, and that helps with the timing of the show. I forgot all of those keystrokes, so I'm having trouble even putting in what we call a mat where it would say David Steele, podcast host. So I'm getting help with that because at home, the system didn't allow me to do any of it for two years. So other people had to do my work. Now I'm essentially screwed. <laughs> I have to do it myself again. And it's hard. This isn't, I, for the record, this isn't the first time we've talked, but could you tell that I remember you telling the story of one of the movie stars that actually came into the, the studio and everybody stopped typing. Could you quickly, like, do you remember sure. that story? I do remember the story because when you've been doing this as long as I have, which has been a little years, yeah. you meet a lot of people. And then one day there was a woman. And now let me tell you, we've had Oscar winners in that newsroom and major pop culture figures. And one day there was a woman who'd written a book and it was her autobiography. And I wanted to interview her because I'd loved her work in old Westerns and the original Parent Trap. And it was Maureen O'Hara this gorgeous red-haired actress of a certain time. And she walked into the room and she had had a sprain or a fall and she had a lucite cane and it looked very regal. And she held her head up high and she walked. And as she walked through the newsroom, everything stopped and people just looked at what was old Hollywood glamour, which they weren't used to. So this 84-year-old woman walked in and looked every bit of the star that she did when she was in her 30s, 40s, and 50s. You may remember her from a movie she made with John Candy, uh, who's, which was it? I don't, I don't remember the name of it now, but it, 
that's in her older years. I interviewed her for that long, long ago. So Maureen O'Hara had written this book and I sat and talked to her for about a half an hour in another room that we had set up with lighting. And she was such a delight and so honest about her career, the good movies she made, the ones she thought were stinkers. And I felt like I was in the presence of real Hollywood royalty. And that rarely happens. And her book, if you can find it, is really good. It's a nice autobiography and tells a lot of behind the scenes stories. She made these movies with director John Ford, and it was a messed up relationship, the way he treated her. It was George, very fascinating. Something about that really fascinated the old glamour, right? The old Hollywood glamour that people are not used to. And I see that year by year, some people are like, Oscar is not what it used to be. You know, you're in the red carpet every year. So you've been keeping up, like we saw stars wearing flats, some wearing shorts, women not wearing dresses, which I'm all pro for. But how does it feel? Do you still feel like there's still a weight, a heavy weight of being the Oscars? There is still, maybe not glamour is the, is the word, but there is still that respect because it is the most important award that we have in cinema today. I think the fashion usually is pretty on point at the Oscars. There were some exceptions of people that just wanted to, I think, shake the envelope a little bit. Um, Timothy Chalamet showing up in a tuxedo without a shirt. Um, that seems to be a look because the host of Saturday Night Live this past week was um, Jared Carmichael, and he did the same thing in his monologue. Kristen Stewart's shorts certainly, certainly made an impact that people thought, whoa, but Kristen Stewart was edgy all along the way during the award season. So I think that that was kind of like, okay, you know, there's, there's, there have always been these Oscar moments where people show on the carpet and say, what? One time <laughs> Sally Kirkland, the actress who was nominated for Anna once upon a time showed up in a dress and she had like a string attached and she started going like this and the dress opened up like curtains, like rising on her dress in front to show off her legs And then there was a woman named Edie Williams, who back in the day in the in the 80s and the 90s, she'd show up for the Oscars. I don't know how she ever got on the carpet because I don't think she stayed. She'd have her dog. She'd have on a revealing outfit, very revealing up top. And she'd talk to people in the line and then leave. Edie Williams did not have the greatest acting resume, but she was just an Oscar moment that had become a tradition. I haven't seen her in years now, but it's one of those things where you don't know, you know what you're going to see. So we like a little of that, but for the most part, it's pretty respectful. Speaking of the Oscars, and I, went, I was going through your, your Facebook page and I noticed a, a, an older photograph. Can you talk to me about when you actually met Roger Ebert on the red carpet of the Oscars? I, I can take you back even further than that. I was a kid. I was an intern at WMAQ-TV in Chicago, and Roger Ebert used to do movie reviews for my station that I worked for or was an intern for. And so I would sneak into the studio when Roger was doing his reviews. And then later, Roger, I, I got a job at the station and Roger was still there. And so I got to know Roger a little bit and ask him questions. And then Roger went off to another station in town, WLS, the ABC station, because it was more convenient for his world. He could do his reviews from his office, they said, instead of being on set. And that was a nice time saver for him. So he switched stations. So then all of a sudden to start co-hosting this syndicated Oscar show with Roger Ebert was great. 
And we did it for a number of years together. And we had a really good working relationship. And he was such a nice man. And he loved movies. And he loved even watching bad movies. It didn't matter to him because if it was bad, then he could take to the typewriter and, and pump out a really fun review. Uh, he It was interesting at the Oscars, you guys, because sometimes like he might say, I want so-and-so to win the Oscar. And then the other nominees would show up on the carpet. And this is before a lot of the social media stuff, you know, and they would be watching in their limos. And he's saying, I want like Gene Smith to win. And then Connie Jones shows up and it's like, I don't want to talk to them. He wants Gene Smith. <laughs> so sometimes it was a little, a little difficult, but for the most part, all of the stars really respected him. And so they'd come over to us. Now it's live TV. It's going all around the country, all around the world. Right. And so we wear earpieces and in my ear, I will hear a producer yelling, George, you have one minute, one minute to break. And Roger's having a conversation and Roger couldn't wear an earpiece because he wasn't used to live television. He didn't want to wear the earpiece. It threw him off. So we had cues where I would kick his foot at 30 seconds or, or I'd tap him on the back. And occasionally he got so wrapped up into an interview. Once I remember with Martin Scorsese that he kind of just forgot that he was on TV. And so they're screaming in my ear. And so I had to turn around while he was talking and say, while Roger continues his conversation with Martin Scorsese, we'll be back with more from an evening at the Academy Awards. And then we go to commercial and Roger kept talking. Um, Scorsese never knew he wasn't on TV anymore. But Roger and I had a great time together. And sometimes Roger would recognize people from their movie roles, but didn't know who they were when they were all dressed up, which was kind of fun because I would say, well, that's so-and-so. I didn't recognize her. And so we, we shared things very well. Sometimes people wanted to come and talk to me. Sometimes people had no interest in me and just wanted to see Roger. And if Roger gave a film or a performance, a special bit of love, then those stars would want to come over and say, thank you. I may be nominated because of you even if that wasn't on camera. So lovely, lovely man. And one of the people that he was really supportive of early on in the, in the process was a little girl who would wait outside the Shrine Auditorium during rehearsals because she wanted to be in the movie business. And so this little girl had her picture taken with Roger Ebert one day after his rehearsal. I don't remember if Gene Siskel was in the picture or not, his old partner. And that young lady grew up to be Ava DuVernay. And Ava DuVernay is a famous director, you know, who has herself been nominated for Oscars and now has um, Array Entertainment and is directing and doing television. And she's a big, big deal. And she had a little movie. She used to be a publicist in this town. And I dealt with her all the time. I loved her even back then. So supportive of independent films. So she makes this movie his name escapes me. And Roger did a review in his newspaper that's syndicated all over, giving her movie great, great, great reviews. That changed Ava's career. And she never forgot it. And she and Roger had a special relationship until the time he died. And sticking to the backstage just a little bit longer, we cannot avoid the question of, you know, the incident that happened this Oscars. Was it difficult for you guys? Is I, you know, like, being live on TV and something like this happens and no one is sure about, was it uh, a joke? 
was it not a joke? Was it a serious? What happened? What is going to happen now? Like, how was it for you this year? And did you feel a shift in the mood of the attendees because of that? Good question. Yes, absolutely. A shift in the mood. So what happens is you're in the auditorium and there are these big screens on either side. So I'm there for a while in the Dolby theater. And so because I'm so far away, like on the second mezzanine watching the Oscars, I look at the big television monitors because it helps me see them better. But if you're a main nominee, you're on that main floor and you see how close they are, right? You don't need to do this and strain your neck because they're right in front of you. So when it came to Chris Rock and Will Smith, which is the incident I know you're talking about, uh, first, Chris Rock did not know she had alopecia. I will say that. He's come out and said that. There were also joke writers. So I don't know, did Chris write that joke or were there joke writers that helped and he said it? I don't know. We don't know the answer to that yet. But so these people are looking at what's going on. He slaps him. He has a smirk on his face and sits down. And when he starts yelling at Chris, remember, his audio is going toward the stage. Everyone else is behind him. They're not looking up. They don't know that what's happening. Is it a skit? Is it serious? What is it? And then Chris continued and Questlove won and all that. So I think there was a lot of almost like shock in the audience. What is going on? Was it a joke? Was it a joke that didn't work? Is this serious? And I think some people have said when Will won later and then people stood up and gave a standing ovation, it's almost like that's what you do in those situations. So there was a lot of confusion. People just didn't know. And people were coming up to the governor's ball. Now, here's where everything changed. I'm at the governor's ball. I'm the only crew that's talking to people outside, but there are people in front of me. I can't, they can't get their attention. And then I realized I had gotten some of their attention. I had gotten the attention of a few stars. Uh, They did not want to come over to talk to me because the mood had changed and no one wanted to be asked that question. And when you're on live TV, that's a possibility, right? I had talked to one person who talked all about it. We used that, but I needed to make this a celebration of the night. I did not want CODA to be short shrifted or any of the other people who won for this one bad moment, right? So it just so happened that when we were starting our post show of all the parties, the cast of CODA came to me at just the right time, waited a few minutes. We did the scandal at the beginning then tossed Dakota, but I needed to let them celebrate. This was too big a moment to be stained with a slap. So they got their time. I said, thank you. We said we'd talk more about what happened with the controversy, and then we threw it off to some parties. But as the evening went on and people were leaving the governor's ball, I still talked to some people, and we had fun, nice interviews. But people that I've known for years, I could see look over to me, but then look away. They didn't want to stop because it was too, too, I think, too dangerous for them to have to deal with what had happened because people, frankly, LOL, were still processing it. Absolutely. I think the only thing I can maybe compare this to is maybe four or five years ago with the what they call envelope gate mm-hmm. with the mistake of. So for those that aren't familiar, about four or five years ago, um, there was a mix up. For best picture and the i remember this vividly it was uh faith dunaway and one baby came out to present best picture of, of the year it was the last award of the evening because i believe it was the 45th or 50th anniversary of um 
Thank you. And so they had read the wrong name on the envelope. And they were, whether it was given the wrong, they didn't take the right envelope or whatever. Long story short, Moonlight ended up winning Best Picture. And that was a live, that was on live television. And the controversy that it caused and the uproar, that's the only thing I can compare it to. I actually disagree with you, David. I don't think nothing compares to that because that's a mistake we can possibly all understand. And envelopes happen. It's not an aggression where we're talking about, is he going to be you know, excluded from the academy? Is he right? Is he wrong? There's, I, I don't think nothing compares to what we saw. What do you think, George? Do you think it's comparable? I think it's, it's, a, you know, it's a violence. It's a reaction. Well, I think David is right in saying that it is a moment that, shocked everybody. So the Will Smith moment shocked everybody. And I think that's probably what you were, what you were referring to because it was a shocking, shocking moment, but Illawa, you're right too, because we get that it was a mistake. It was an error. It was not done intentionally. The slap was intentional. The opening or saying the wrong name on a card. That was just a bad mistake, which they milked the next year. Remember, David, when Faye Dunaway and Warren Beatty returned to do the same thing and get it right? <laughs> yes, yes. Now, um, actually, one more picture I saw on your Facebook page. I went, Lin-Manuel Miranda, the creator of Hamilton, and the most recent film he did was Tick, Tick, Boom. You, you, you celebrated is that what thirty fourth birthday with him, or just it was just a photo op? Or? It was just a photo. I think he's just. Somebody who is, I think, very, very talented. You know, a lot of times what happens is you're a star on Broadway and you come to Los Angeles and nobody knows who you are. So there are Broadway stars that would have, like Patti LuPone did a TV show and more people probably know her for that TV show, Life Goes On, than might know her for Broadway, unless you're in New York. In New York, she's a superstar. In LA, it's different. Broadway in New York, and Broadway in LA or Hollywood are two very different things. So... Lin-Manuel, Lin-Manuel was one of those people who kind of crossed that barrier because his Hamilton made such an impact and then came here on tour and made such an impact. And then he started doing other things, all timed very well. And he's so talented that people wanted to work with him. So now Tick, Tick, Boom, Music with Encanto. I've interviewed him for a couple of other things. He's a delightful man. You know, it's And he wants to do excellent work and he's media friendly. And I think he's still kind of surprised by it all. I mean, Patti LuPone is still a Broadway goddess, but still will come to Hollywood to work, which we also like to see. Cheetah Rivera is another great example. In New York, Cheetah Rivera is royalty. But when you get to L.A., it's a little bit different. The stage and the screen, um, the stardom scale is a little bit different. I think you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I do. I do. Another big probably the second or third biggest entertainment thing that's going on that goes on around this country is the Grammys tonight. But I, I, we've got to backtrack a little. I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about all the great stars that we've lost in the last four months. Betty White, Sidney Poitier, Bob Saget, Louis Anderson. It's just, it's unbelievable. We had one of these years, a few years back where, they had to make the in memoriam section at the Oscars like a minute and a half longer than it was because so many people were dying. And you know what happens? People die. And then people are watching the Oscars waiting. Where is that person? And then they get all angry. Bob Saget did not make that list. 
Bob Saget wasn't really a movie star. He was a television star more than anything or a live stand-up guy. So when they always have to pick a mix because they want to honor the entire industry, it's not just people in front of the camera. So there are so many slots and they pick and choose and they do their best. And every year people complain, but this year you're right. More people were dying. I felt like people were afraid to read my social media because I kept posting about death. Yeah, it was just, it was, I mean, Estella Harris just passed away no more than 24 hours ago. You're right. And it's like, my goodness. And I feel like everything is a little bit of context too, right? Like you cannot exclude an Oscar for its context. So like you said, Koda was a relief. We're all coming out of a pandemic. We're dealing with the war. We're dealing with crisis and inflations. Everything's so heavy. You know, you're posting all this death. So it's a relief to have said. How do you think the, the 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 atmosphere might affect what we're going to see in the big screen in the next few years? Because it definitely impacts our creativity. Here you are saying that you have to adapt everything again to your own profession. So- well, you're going to still see movies in this coming year that were shot during the pandemic. So there are going to be these films that uh, people hardly knew the people they were working with. And, you know, J.K. Simmons is a great example of someone. He showed up at the Oscar luncheon. He had his mask on. Now, we all had to be tested for the Oscar luncheon. And then you you could take off your mask when you were eating. So, like, he would take off his mask, but then put it back on. He walked to the stage to take his picture when they announced groups of nominees. Could take off the mask, but then put it back on. He walked into my room to do an interview after the Oscar luncheon and had a mask on, but took it off when it was time to talk. And he was kind of going by the SAG guidelines is this is how you stay safe. So people haven't, some people made movies and never really saw anybody because if they weren't in the scene or weren't on the set the same day, because they were working so um, with small crews, et cetera, that they got to know each other afterwards. So I think, I've interviewed people who said, I, I only met her once, or it's so it's so good to meet you at this premiere. <laughs> so it's it's I think we're gonna see movies that were made during the pandemic, and people will tell us how great it is to um have hopefully we're out of it as this year goes on more and more. There are still very many uh protocols in place. Uh, if you uh, I've gone to many premieres as recently as Oscar Week and you show up to the premiere and the studio gives you a test in a little section before you hit the red carpet and you're not allowed on the red carpet until you get a negative COVID test. And then you walk to the carpet. So by the time all those journalists, and they've limited the amount of people at these premieres, by the way, oftentimes 20 is the max for for a premiere, 15 crews maybe, used to be 40, 50. So by the time you all walk out there, you all know you've just tested negative. And then the stars have been tested too. And so when they walk out onto the carpet, you know they've tested negative. So there is a more of a feeling of safety, but you know that's not 100%. It's not perfect, but it's, it's trying to move on and be as safe as we can. But there are still many protocols that we will be going through in the months to come, I think. Um, so yeah, so uh, as she just brought up, so blockbuster season's right around the corner, and this is the big. This is going to be your big, big time, you know, in the next three months. Is there anything that you're looking forward to seeing, maybe whether it's reviewing or just? I like a good popcorn movie. 
And David, you could name three right now if you wanted to. That will be Elvis. I know you want to see the Top Gun sequel. I know you like Mission Impossible, but that's not even, is that coming out now? Or is that, uh, that, so that's actually July of uh, 2023. That's so actually going to be next year. So you're going to have to wait. Uh, yeah, so at least another year. So the big one that is right around the corner, and you know we're going to be talking about it at the beginning of May, is Doctor Strange, the sequel to Doctor Strange, Multiverse yeah. of Madness. I um, talked to the woman who runs Marvel, one of the people, the bigwigs, Victoria Alonso. And Victoria, who I love, said, everything you think you know about this movie, forget it. You don't know. It's wild. It's incredible. It's visual. It's going to surprise you. And there are twists and turns that you won't see coming. She sold it like, uh, you know, uh, like a, a, an expert salesperson because she's so excited about Dr. Strange and I love Benedict Cumberbatch. And so I'm in. Yeah. And I think a, a couple of things that Marvel does so well, number one, they tie everything together. So, so well, whether it's with their cutscenes or whether it's with their stories or whether it's with their television, it's just amazing. Number two is their writing. Their writing is impeccable to, you know, they have that perfect mixture of comedy, drama, and, you know, maybe if there has a romantic uh, twist to it. But the other thing, they get top, top pound all the time. 10, 15 years ago, you never saw it. I mean, I can think of five people off the top of my head that you, Robert Redford in The Winter Soldier would have never happened. Sam Raimi, as we were just talking about, Dr. Strange, direct. Of course, everybody remembers him from the old Spider-Man trilogy. Um, it's just actors and actresses, they want to be Glenn Close playing in Guardians of the Galaxy. But All some of, these, of those people will also oh, go ahead. Yeah. And some it's of, just one of those. <laughs> uh, go ahead. Interrupting you go, David. No, 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 no. Go ahead. I, uh, this is why we have you on. I'm sorry. Some of these stars will tell you that they've made these movies because when they've got their offers, their children have said, you better do it, dad. You well, know, because they want a movie that they can brag about to their friends, that their dad's in. This has been around now for 15 years, or, you know, 27 movies, 15 years, and it's a 16 billion, and that's what the B boys and girls, 16 billion dollars, this franchise. There has been nothing like this. So when Illawa, you, have, you can hear, Illawa, that this is a super fan, right? Yes. Absolutely. And, and <laughs> the passion oh, got right here. This is passion, everyone. If you but, have a third to yeah. be, that's the sound of love. But it, it's just getting back to it, though. It, it has everything you want. And nobody thought that this would do what it did all those years ago. And I think that's a major thing is when we're in a moment, whatever it is, we're in the moment. And I think what escapes a lot of people is five, six, seven years, we look back and go, oh, oh. And I think that's, so getting back to the whole thing, Dr. Strange and I, and by the way, I cannot wait. Can you tell I can't wait for Dr. Strange? Oh, I um, so that, that, and then we have several other movies coming out that are going to be very good. Well, now, here's how I watch a superhero movie, David. I sit next to someone like Illawa who knows her Marvel stuff, for instance, or you. And then I'll say, okay, I missed that. What was that? Okay, okay. I'm not, a, I'm not the hugest Marvel girl. Okay, or... well, David, so David is. And so I'd say, okay, David, who is she? 
And then he'll say, well, she was blah, blah, blah. And then she becomes a villain in, in a couple of years or whatever. So I usually go to these Marvel movies with a Marvel expert because it helps me understand a little bit more. And if I don't go and I'm by myself or you can't bring a guest or whatever to the screening, I always say that I'll get lost along the way, but I still know, okay, she's bad. He's good. (laughs) And we'll figure it all out in the end. So I never feel too lost, but I'm not at your level of Marvel understanding. That's why they call it a universe, right? Universe, like Marvel (laughs) universe. It feels like you have to be part of the world to fully understand. But you know something that I'm curious about? We've seen that in the Oscar, foreign movies have have gathered more attention, right? Like Parasite was a huge Mm -hmm. success, won the Oscar. How do you keep up with what is happening outside of Hollywood? Because in my opinion, Argentinian movies are really good and sometimes even better than what we're seeing here in, you know, French movies. Some people love it and hate it. How do you keep up with everything that is happening outside of, in the other side of the border? Sure. You have to read what's what's happening in the trades, what's appearing at film festivals. You have to write. Yeah, I have a little notepad sometimes that I'll write a title because I'll look for it because sometimes they're never offered to us. And then you see a movie like Drive My Car. So Drive My Car had gotten critical acclaim, and I'm looking at this thinking, oh, my gosh, this is a three-hour movie. It's in Japanese. I can't be looking at my phone because I'll miss something the whole way. So I sat down to watch it thinking, I'll watch this maybe an hour at a time because I know it's going to be difficult. I sat down. I put in that movie. I was mesmerized from beginning to end. I didn't speak the language, but I followed that story just, uh, I think, as well as anybody else. And I loved what it was saying. And I loved that I didn't know where it was going. And it made me stay attracted to it the entire way through. So then this movie gets nominated for Best International Feature and Best Picture at the Oscars. You know they've done something right. There's a documentary, or should I say there's an animated film, or should I say there's an international feature that was nominated this year. It It was nominated for all three. It's an animated documentary that was produced in, a, in about Afghanistan refugees, and it's called Flee. And this is a movie that got three Best Picture nominations in different categories. It didn't win, but it was fascinating to watch, told a good story, mixed real animation with some raw animation, with some news footage of the day. And it's when you hear about something like that and want to know you and that's the other thing is the buzz people start to talk about it so i talked to these filmmakers who made flea and i love talking to them because there was such a passion now to be nominated three times and walk out without an oscar you'd think oh poor guys but i don't think they are now on the map you know they got attention and so now that they've gotten the attention more people want to work with this team again and you'll probably see them back at the oscars soon enough with another project there seems to be a cycle a lot of times where you get the notice and people want to see what you're going to do next ben proudfoot made a movie called the concerto as a conversation last year he was at the oscars and it was a movie about a man who grew up in the jim crow south came to la opened to cleaners his son chris bauer i mean his his grandson chris bowers um, is a musician and started working in movies even worked with ava duvernay And they told the story of this man's journey from the Jim Crow South to L.A. and how his grandson had really made it in the business. That became a documentary short that was nominated. It didn't win. This year, back is Ben Proudfoot as the director of a movie 
another documentary short called The Queen of Basketball about Lucia Harris, a woman who played basketball back in the day. And Shaquille O'Neal said, how is this possible? I never knew of her. So he hopped on board as an EP. Stephen Curry, I think through Shaq, heard about it and wanted to get involved. He got involved. Anyway, long story short, Ben Proudfoot didn't get win the first year. He won this past Oscar year. And now they're going to try to turn the Queen of Basketball into a feature film. And how great is that? Those are the untold, unknown stories. The diamonds in the rough, frankly, mm-hmm. that you don't hear about. And then when you you hear about a big win like that, you hear about all these things. To your point, as you were talking about Flea, I actually was watching the documentary uh, Roundtable. And they were talking about Flea. And so... I was captivated. So for the the 45 second clip, I was captivated. I I actually, I haven't seen it yet. I want to sit down and watch it. It's a remarkable story. It's about two friends that were actually, um, one of them had never told a story. I mean, you you were telling it very well, had never told a story. And then after many years sat down and he wanted to tell a story about all of these things. And the way they were able to incorporate animation, real life, news footage, remarkable. It made it a little easier to watch because of all the horrible things they went through. But it also made it where you could, for the most part, play you know, this in a high school. You could, you could play this for other audiences. You could watch it with your kids, maybe. There is some subject matter that you might have to discuss with your, with your child, but it it is made to be more, it was made to be, I think, more accessible. And so that, that's what was great. Also, you should know, you should, if you look at the Academy Award list and see a title that might be of interest to you, Google it, because you can see the Queen of Basketball at newyorktimes.com. You can find these movies on Netflix or different places now. They're sometimes just websites of what they've, what they've done. And some of these short documentaries, you will see reappear um, in some form along the way, if people think they can get it made into another kind of a movie. And, and Illua, to your other point, a lot of times during Oscar season, there are events in Los Angeles where you can go see all the nominated documentary shorts or here are the documentaries and we're going to bring a week's worth of people in to talk every other day, you know, with, with the filmmakers. So if you're interested in those other categories, it's a good pl- LA is a good place to be Absolutely. to be in the know, which is nice because you know you're at home, you live in Michigan, and you're seeing a category come up on best sound editing. What? But here at LA, there might be uh, an event where all the sound editors get together and take the stage during Oscar season. So we can be smart moviegoers here. <laughs> yeah, and oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I know we have to wrap up and then I would just like to throw in my last uh, question here for you, which is basically how our work becomes a a big part of our identity, right? Like if I ask you, who are you? At some point, you're going to say I'm a journalist, you know, I'm a reporter. How did this job have changed you and how is it still changing who you are and your perception of the world? Okay. Uh, I started out as a kid who wasn't the most athletic. I had two brothers that were good at that. I couldn't compete with that, but I did like TV. I was watching TV as a child. I was a child. I was a product of television. 
So I did my homework in front of the TV in kindergarten. I started at noon because back then that's when you were morning or afternoon. So my bedtime at, when I was five was 11. So I stayed up and watched prime time every night with my mom. So I love TV. I love the movies. My before Entertainment Weekly or People Magazine, there were just what they called movie magazines, which my mother would buy. And it was movie information, upcoming films, industry gossip, feature stories, that kind of thing. So I read all of those magazines, right, as a little kid. So I knew of all these people that I didn't really know who they were. Who's Dorothy Malone? Well, she was on a show called Peyton Place. So you're reading about Dorothy Malone. And for some reason, all this information just stuck in my head, right? So as I got older, I had a friend and every weekend in junior high, we went to the movies. So I started my love of movies really early, but I always had the love of television. So I've always kind of watched both and done stories on both along the way. And then you get to a point where you move into your career. And I was started behind the scenes in Chicago. Then I went to Monterey. And while I was in Monterey, I started doing feature reporting and entertainment reporting and movie reviews while I also produced a newscast. Then I moved to San Diego and gave up the on-air stuff for a while and just produced the news. So when you produce the news, it's a, it's a big job. And I did, was the 11 o'clock produ- producer for the most of the time I was in San Diego. But two years into the run there, they started morning shows. And I said, I should do entertainment. And they asked for ideas and I submitted a report. I took my old technical writing book out from college, wrote a very professional report, and the boss said I'm in. So I started doing entertainment two, three times a week in addition to producing. So then when this offer came from Los Angeles at KBC here, um, Channel 7 in LA, I suddenly didn't have to produce anymore, but I was ready to be a producer of my own stuff because I had produced shows. So I work with the producer and it's great. But uh, I think because I had this past experience, it helps us be a really great team. So we work, we, we work together on all that. But now what happens is, is what I think you're getting at is I'll go to the grocery store and people want to talk to me about a movie or people want to see, have you seen that show? People will want to ask me about the Oscars. So people want to know my opinion or thoughts on things a lot. And it's weird. I mean, I love telling you at home that I love a movie that it's really good, or I really recommend it. It's really funny. It's not really a pleasure in this town to say, oh, I didn't like that. I mean, I've had a movie that once I didn't like at all, that I said I didn't like at all, and it won an Oscar. So, <laughs> you know, you never know what I mean, you know. what's going to be. But I, I find that uh, now in this new era, like you're the young ones, you get social media really well. You can maneuver your telephone much faster than I can to get news of the day or find something. So my interns, when we had them, and hopefully we'll have them again soon, really helped me with the social media aspect. So I'm trying to still catch up on that. I'm doing okay. Uh, I'm not complaining so much. It's just harder for me because they're so fast. And you're yeah, probably another layer. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a different language. You're right. And so I'm, I'm, getting, an I'm not giving says, up. Yeah, I read an article that says that basically every social media now requires us to be a side of whatever we are. 
we also have to be a, a, a market team, right? You have to write it. It's a lot of work. So I get it's a, you. It's a lot of work. And, you know, there are some things you think are really important and you put out there and nobody cares. But yep. and, then, and then on the flip side of the coin, the things that you go, eh, those are the things everybody wants to know about. And it's just a matter of being able to balance you're, okay. you're mixing. Yeah, I mix profession and fun. Like I do on Mondays, often I do something I call memorabilia Monday and I go into crates in the garage and find, you know, a yo-yo from some movie from 20 years ago or something that somebody gave me attached to a film. And I'll show them because I just never threw it away. A snow globe from Fargo. And when you shake it, it was like blood because it was a wood chipper, you know, like silly stuff, but that you think, okay, that's cool. I give a lot of it away, but I do. Uh, I save stuff and people like seeing that. Um, I got my wife hooked into soup of the week and we do soups every Wednesday now. And we're going to have guest chefs come in and or like put their soup recipes on. And it's just it got it was getting us through the cold weather. And who knows if we'll move it to salad of the week. But it, it also helped me post. And it shows you outside of the world that Illua was kind of discussing, like just your work world, because the work world and the home world start to blend a little bit because people are nosy. You know, I'll do a live shot from my family room and there'll be a bookcase behind me and someone will freeze the shot, take a picture of it, zoom in and then email me or or somehow write me on Facebook or Instagram to let me know they've read that book too. Okay. That's a little weird. Yeah. But I just think that, they want, oh, like he has my taste. I don't think it's like really looking around trying to be that nosy, but they are curious. So, you know, beware of family photos. Yeah. No. And that's where I got the throwback Thursday photographs from and oh. what you were doing with that. And so, I mean, I, I saw the soups and I saw the, the throwback Thursdays and I saw all the, the different things. Um, before we go, though, briefly tell us. So, you do have two greyhounds. I know you got to get going, but briefly tell us about your two greyhounds, Emmy and Audrey. How long have you had them? Well, Emmy and Audrey, we've had a, a long time now. They're both seniors. Okay. We adopted Emmy when she was a year and a half. She's in her 13th. Uh, she's, yeah, so she's in her 13th year now. And Audrey is about close to 11. And so when we were fresh in LA, we decided we would like to get a pet and we started researching what we would get. And initially it was going to be cats. And I wanted to, uh, my wife wanted a Cornish Rex, you know, they have those, they're like kind of like curly hair almost. And I like the one that was like Mr. Bigglesworth, you know, the bald ones. And then my wife makes gowns for a living, you know, and fancy clothes. And all we thought about, we didn't want to declaw them was her opening up her dress room and there'd be a cat hanging, you know, from a gown. So we decided, okay, maybe not a cat. So then we started looking at dogs and we liked the idea of an Italian greyhound. And I'm Italian. I thought, this is kind of cool. Look how cute this dog is. I called a rescue and they wanted me to put, uh, they have to be out in the sun every day for an hour, this woman said. And But you have to put sunblock on them. And, it, and then I said, I hear they break their legs easy. She, and she says, that's true. They're not very good with stairs. And so we had 58 stairs at one point in this house we lived in. And I thought, no, okay, not Italian greyhound. And then the woman I worked with said, you should look at greyhounds. They're really great dogs. We did a story once. Anyway, we drove up to Acton to a rescue and we, it was raining. We were not prepared. They knew we were coming, but it was a struggle to get there in the rain. But we showed up 
we went into the area, they called them doggy condos where all these dogs were. And there was this one dog that didn't get up. He was eight years old and had been a runaway and passed over. I think he had been abused um, at one point. And my wife was attracted. She said, who is that? And the lady said, oh, that's Bronco. He, he just wants a home. And so she took out the leash. We walked Bronco. And the next thing you know, we're driving home with an eight-year-old greyhound. We didn't have a dog dish. We didn't have a dog bed. We stopped along the way at a, at a store and bought everything we could and took this dog home. And, and that started it. And that was 20 something, you know, 25 years ago or something that we got this dog and then we wanted him to have company. And so we took him back to the rescue until he found the dog he wanted. So it took three or four trips. And so what we've always done was take the dog we have to pick the dog he or she wants. So they've always gotten along great. So Emmy and Audrey are old souls now. And all they like to do is, you know, eat treats lie down, get their daily walk. They're pretty quiet. Emmy is a little bit more of a guard dog. If she hears mail delivered or something, she'll bark. So that's good. But they're very sweet, quiet, gentle, lazy dogs. I got to ask real quick, was Audrey after Audrey Hepper? Um, this is a good story. Um, would my wife like to tell it? Does she want to come into frame? She's saying, Aaron, um, how um, she this is Pinocchio. Come on in. Please. Here, I'm going to stand up and let her tell you the Audrey story. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. You want me to sit here? Oh, geez. Okay. I haven't got my hair. Finally, it's it's nice to meet you. (laughs) Hi. So, Audrey and how she became Audrey. Um, Her name was Kate. And we have a lot of Kates in our life. Catherine's and Kate's and Kathy's. So, I just felt like she needed her own name, special name. She's very dainty and very sweet and the tiniest greyhound we've ever had. And I felt like she was very dainty, like Audrey Hepburn, who is my fashion icon. So I tried Audrey out on her and she didn't seem to play it weird or anything. And when I told the woman who ran the the greyhound rescue, we've changed her name to Audrey she said, oh, that's perfect. She's much more of an Audrey Hepburn than a Kate Hepburn. <laughs> so that's the story. <laughs> and she definitely suits Audrey. <laughs> nice. Thank you very much. And that's a great story, by the way. There you go. That's a fantastic story. And I don't know, is there anything you wrapping up you'd like to ask Ella or just... Of course, we would be talking to you for eternity here. Yes. There's so much topics, but I just really appreciate your time right now. And you're giving all, all the scoops and details of your work and the Oscars. It was a very pleasant surprise to talk to you. Oh, well, thank you very much. It was nice yeah. talking to you, thank too. You. You're yeah. both lovers of what I do and lovers of the movie business. And so that's fantastic. You know, yeah. it's it's a difficult business sometimes. And there are a lot of things at play especially now as we're heading especially back to it, but we just kind of soldier on. What else can you do? Right? Well, no, in a, in a, you know, I envy you because the, the, this is where what you're doing for a living is what I'm trying to build. You have this community and everything else. This is what I'm trying. We, not I, we are trying to do. And so the fact that you, as I said before, off camera, the fact that you're willing to take the time and 
and do this is fantastic. And I want to thank you very much. So for David Steele, Aloha Orism, and Mr. George Pinocchio, you've been listening to another episode of Real Talk. Bye-bye.